You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. For whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, Provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. May God bless the understanding of his word. You may be seated to hear our consideration of it. He began his life with classic disadvantages. His mother was a very domineering woman, unable really to express love to anyone. She was married three times. The father of the boy I'm describing to you was her third husband, and he died shortly before the child's birth. Her second husband left her because she beat him regularly. This mother worked long hours, but Even when she was home, she gave her only son no affection and no discipline, only a steady stream of criticism. He was a misfit at school. Despite an above-average IQ, he failed in many subjects and barely squeaked through high school graduation. He was scrawny in build, rejected on the playground. Somehow he thought he might earn acceptance in the U.S. Marine Corps. And he did there become rather expert at one thing, marksmanship. But he resisted military authority, and later he was court-martialed from the Marines. He went to live in a foreign country and married a woman there and then brought her to America. She expected her American husband would provide her with a lot of material possessions and wealth she had not known in her original country. And when he could not do that and could hardly hold a job, she started ridiculing him and belittling him as a provider. One day, between his treatment from his mother, which was ongoing in adulthood, and his wife ganging up on him also, this man told that he fell to his knees and just wept bitterly at the emptiness and seeming purposelessness of his life. It was shortly after that that he took a rifle to work. At his new job, 
in a book storage warehouse. Concealed in an upper story window, you know only too well that shortly after noon on November 22, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald sent two expertly fired bullets crashing into the head of President John F. Kennedy in a motorcade below. Lee Oswald was a fatherless, unloved, unmothered, unlovable failure who killed the one man who possibly more than anyone else on earth embodied all of the family sense of belonging, the personal success, charisma, and wealth that he, Oswald, had never known and could never know. He used the only skill he excelled at in his whole miserable life to change the course of American history. Now, I am not about to excuse Lee Oswald and call him nothing but a social victim. He, in fact, chose to cold-bloodedly commit his crime of assassination. But we still have to ask what might have happened to him if a mother could have nurtured him, and a father or any male figure could have been present in his life to show him an example of manhood and establish some boundaries and encourage him as a young man. Failures in the home can have huge consequences for the whole world. Well, this morning we're studying Colossians as Paul has been unwrapping for us ways that the fullness of God in Jesus Christ works itself out in the life of a Christian, not just in what we believe, but in our character and our behavior. We've seen that if Jesus is truly your Lord, He will show in your life. Your relationships will be different. Your behavior, your values, your fellowship in His body, the church, will be a different thing. And you don't live anymore merely for yourself. It's not all about me anymore, but Christ in me, the hope of glory. Perhaps that is the great phrase of the book of Colossians. Christ in me, and all the difference that that makes. Now today we look at a number of things related in a general way. Each of them could be in a separate address, I think, in Colossians 3.18 to 4.1. But here what's in common is we're told the crunch of Christian discipleship comes in the home and in everyday living in the work that we do. Is the fact of the lordship of Jesus a controlling influence on the kind of wife you are or husband that you are or parent or employee or employer? All of these are addressed here in this short text. I was thinking of a passage in the Gospel of Mark where we read how Jesus had cast multiple demons out of a man, and he was miraculously restored from an absolutely miserable, tortured existence to be a man whole and sound in mind. And the first thing he begged to do was say, Jesus, take me with you. In effect, let me go on the Gospel touring circuit with you. Maybe I can can tell about the wonders that you've done by the power of God. 
But Jesus said, no, go back home. Go back home and tell the folks there of the power of God and what has happened to you. Let your neighbors see the great work, the great miracle of God in your life. And it seems implicit that the lesson of Mark 5 there is that if your life does not display Christ on your home turf, then you won't be effective for him anywhere else either. Our text here in Colossians 3 is called by New Testament scholars by a technical name, a household code. There are several of these in the New Testament. You could check Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 2. There are other uh, listings of what we call a household code, rather short epigraphic instructions of how to live in daily life, common everyday relationships. But these things are much more than lists of polite social behaviors, or moral rules. The key issue in them, here in particular in Colossians, is that Christ is your Lord. And because he dwells in you, and because he empowers you, and has given you a new life, you live in all of your household relationships every day. And towards every person you relate to, in the home and in your work, you live a different life. And you, if Christ indeed is in you, treat others with dignity and compassion and integrity, and you act as though they are fellow bearers of God's image given to man and woman at creation. So let's see a little bit of what this says, even though we're going to be gliding quickly over some things that have a lot of depth to them. First of all, verses 18 and 19 of Colossians 3 tell us that Christ is Lord over marriage. Christ is Lord over marriage. We sure need to hear that pretty often, don't we? It says in beginning there, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And the hackles go up all over the place. Totally unnecessary hackles if you would hear the Word of God. I remind you of the amazing fact that Jesus, the Son of God, submitted in obedience to God the Father. And yet it is the teaching of the Scripture that he was the equal of God in divinity and glory and grace and splendor in every way. And yet the Son submitted to the Father even though he was the fullness of God. Our text has told us that. (coughs) That fact alone certainly should make you understand that submission is not based on inferiority or inequality of value. Not at all. Otherwise, Christ the Son would be inferior to and less valuable than God the Father. Are you ready to make that conclusion? And if you're not, then don't make the conclusion that Paul is saying women are inferior to or of less value and glory than their husbands to whom they are asked to submit. In fact, Christianity stands alone among ancient social systems of being one that says Women, indeed, are on a plane of high respect and dignity and equality of value while nevertheless being in differing roles, at least in two spheres, in marriage and in the church. This is not a text, nor is any similar text in the Scripture, any parallel text you would bring alongside this about women in general submitting to men in general. 
It's about Christian wives lovingly, willingly, seeing that there are times when their husband must take a lead in certain aspects of their relationship. And Paul called this fitting, fitting in the Lord, because it was part of the pattern that God gave from creation. We could go into that whole aspect of headship. It's a big subject that deserves separate exploration, and I'm hoping to give it some in months to come. But for now, we just would assert that this submission is not about a husband always being right. It's certainly not about a husband being a tyrannical commander in the home. Biblical submission of a wife to a husband is assumed here to be occurring in a relationship where both have first bowed themselves before Christ as Lord. They have a common Lord. And it also assumes, and we'll say in just a second, that the wife is being cherished and valued and built up so that as she would submit to her husband's leadership in some areas, she does it in perfect security and perfect confidence. To really understand verse 18, I believe you have to almost simultaneously treat verse 19 in what it says to husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is paralleled in Ephesians 5.25 where the same apostle says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Where do men ever get that concept of waving a Bible like a weapon and telling their wives to kneel before them as petty tyrants and obey their every command that they would bully over their wives and the Bible says you should do it. No way, no how. Without any question, the husband has a greater demand made on him in Christian marriage. He is asked to love with a love that is utterly self-sacrificing on behalf of his wife, so much so that the only possible model to hold it up to is the model of Christ giving his very life for the church. Is that letting a man get away with murder? (laughs) I certainly don't think so if you're hearing the Scripture. Together, the Bible teaches that a man and wife are spiritual equals. They are joint heirs of the grace of life. Love for a man's wife must go deeper than friendship, deeper than physical attraction to her. It is a laying down of the life so that the husband is seeking on a daily basis to say, I need to be putting her first. And that is so hard to do. It's it's impossible unless that man is asking for the grace of Christ and the mercy and compassion and strength of his Lord and Savior to love her through him and do what he cannot do in his own nature. Domineering criticism, emotional put-downs, the silent treatment, the secret deceptions, the whole compartment of your life, men, that you don't let your wife see, all of that has no place here. It's absurd for a Christian husband to expect, let alone demand, submission from his wife until 
He has radically loved her. Not in word only, but in convincing daily actions. And when he does that, believe me, I've seen the examples countless times. A wife is ready to gratefully accept that protection and that leadership and give thanks to God for it. For a man who breaks from the natural pattern of selfishness shown by most men in their human nature in this world. Now, it's a very high ideal held up here, a very high ideal. And again, it's unattainable for both the wife and the husband unless both bow to Christ as Lord and say what we do toward one another is not determined by our feelings, by our instinct, by our needs, by our rights. Oh, that's the big one today, isn't it? Give me my rights. As long as you're determining your marriage by your rights, your marriage will fail. But if you're determining your marriage by who is Lord of it, God will give you something extraordinary as he is Lord over both. Christ is Lord of marriage. Well, much more to say there, but we'll move on. Secondly, Christ is here said to be Lord over parenting. Verses 20 and 21 apply here. And they're very brief. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. James Dobson and many, many others have written books about parenting. You've read them. They all have their place by all means. Some of them are great. Some are not so great. But you need to sort out which ones follow the Scripture. But let me tell you, in these two verses, I think the two main threads of parenting are here. And it's not a 300-page book. It's two verses. But the two very essential root principles of parenting are actually here in very condensed form. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. A cornerstone of parenting is the obedience of the child. Not the child's self-esteem, the child's obedience to the parent. When this founders, everything founders. And even very young children must see this established, not by harshness, not by beatings, not by you know, yelling at the children, but from the cradle onward. Obedience is a goal for parents. If you, if you say, well, I'll get around to that goal when they're five, you've lost it, folks. You've lost this battle if it isn't well underway at one. I'm not kidding. I've seen two-year-olds that I could tell you what they will be like when they're 16, and I don't want to be there to see the scene. God has put a hierarchy of authority in this world, and the parent's directive is to teach the child to obey. Now, you might think this is a harsh comparison, but I would say that as a cornerstone principle, it's very much like what the U.S. Army does, takes a new recruit in, shaves off all his hair, and tells him, you're nobody except to obey your sergeant or your lieutenant or your captain or whoever it is. When an order is given, you don't say, hmm, who's that for? I don't think I like it. You obey it. The very fundamental of military operation, of course, is obedience to orders in the chain of command. Now, you say that's a rough thing to compare for a child, but the principle really is the same. The parent has to be the parent and the child has to be the child. 
And if that is not established, and if the child's preferences and desires are going to be the main goal, you've got a destructive situation. And you will breed an ugly personality, I'll use the word, a self-centered brat who is almost incapable of becoming a mature adult. Do you realize? You think you're indulging. You think you're loving the child. You're not loving the child if obedience is not being taught. Hebrews 12 says all sons and daughters of God undergo parental discipline as a proof that the parent loves them. And it relates it to God disciplining us and says we are disciplined by God because he loves us. He doesn't want to let us just develop into whatever we say we shall become. He knows better. And, of course, we let our older children and teenagers gradually get more and more responsibility, letting the rope out. And that's the science, isn't it, parents? Knowing when to sort of pay out the slack and say, all right, you've done well so far. We'll let the rope a little looser. You make this decision, and we'll see how it goes. Because gradually, I want you to not have to be under my implicit obedience. I want you to be an adult. But I'm going to do that carefully because I know better than you do. You know, everyone wants to measure self-esteem these days. It's pretty fascinating that one psychological study after another has looked at teenagers graduating from high school and tried, I don't know how they evaluate self-esteem, but somehow they devise measurements. Is the person confident? Does he have a good sense of self-worth and of others and, you know, character and things that we would admire? And what they find time after time is that the child with the at 18, with the strongest self-esteem is not the child where self-esteem has been worshipped and adored in the home all the way through. It's the child who's had boundaries and guidelines and discipline, who also, of course, was carefully loved and shown affection and encouragement along with rules. In the example I opened with Lee Harvey Oswald, that man actually at the age of 30-something, whatever he was when he killed the president, was really an emotional infant. He never got out of first grade as far as emotional development was concerned because of the awful state of parenting that he experienced. The final word of parenting is there in verse 21. I didn't plan this for Father's Day. I promise you it just came about. Fathers... Do not embitter your children, or they could be exasperated. Isn't it interesting that Paul addresses fathers here? He seems to know what is socially true, that it's usually not the mother who has to be told, don't be too harsh. It's going to more likely be the dad whose impatience, who is going to push too hard and and maybe just not be loving and encouraging alongside the discipline. One writer says that cowboys out west know that they can train wild horses one of basically two ways. If they're in a big hurry and they happen to have a cruel spirit about them, you can train a wild horse, this writer says, by clubbing it repeatedly in the head with a two-by-four. And that horse will be so afraid of you Its spirit will be cowed that it will eventually let you put a saddle on its back and ride it. And you will have broken it, but you will not have trained a horse as it should be trained. The other way, of course, is to be firm, 
but gentle and patient and use that bit and bridle and then the blanket and then the saddle and, you know, go through a patient procedure until the horse is compliant and willingly obeys rather than being broken with the club. John Newton wrote something that haunts me when he said once, quote, I assume my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish for me to see it. Isn't that tragic? I assume my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish for me to see it. I would say to you that if I had my parenting to do all over again, and I'm not wishing for that, with a couple of my children present, I'm sincerely not wishing for that. If you ask my children, was dad too lenient or too strict? I don't know if they'd say too strict, but if you say which, which label applies, lenient or strict, they'd say strict. I know they would. I own that. And I would not take away the firmness in which I disciplined my children. But I'll tell you, and I'm looking you, son and daughter and I think there's another son here somewhere. I'm not sure. I'm looking you in the face and saying, if I could do it again, there'd be more words of praise, more words of direct encouragement. Not that I left them out altogether. But I see in maturity the wisdom of the firmness of obedience along with generous supply of affection and praise sincerely intended. In that environment, children find it easy to obey, and they grow up to be the people the Lord intended them to be. Now, in third place today, Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1 says another thing. Christ is Lord of the workplace. Now, of course, this is a problematic passage in some minds because it's addressed to slaves and masters and I think there's a radical difference between the institution of slavery and the place where you work. Maybe you'll tell me not really. I don't know. That depends on where you work, I suppose, and who you work for. But people today get pretty irate with Paul here because he did not attack the immorality of the institution of slavery. He didn't argue. He didn't say, there should not be such a thing as slavery. You shall not own another person. Well, get a little historical perspective and at least realize that it was the Christian faith and its emphasis on the exaltation of human dignity and justice that eventually, eventually after centuries, overthrew the horrible institution of slavery. Without Christianity, we might well still have widespread slavery. We do have it in some parts of the world, but we might have it many more places. The apostle was addressing people here how to live in the real world as it existed, how to be a disciple of Christ in the real, everyday world that they face, not necessarily how to contemplate a social revolution. We don't apologize for slavery, but the interesting thing is that here was Paul addressing slaves as fellow believers and brothers in Christ. We know from the little letter called Philemon that this was a a topic where he wrote to Philemon. The whole purpose of that being in the Bible was to tell someone who owned a slave that Onesimus, your slave, is your Christian brother. Treat him with charity. Treat him with kindness. You didn't see or hear anything like that in the ancient world where slaves were just property. To be dealt with, you could kill your slaves if you wanted to, and nobody would hold you accountable. 
And so it's not wrong, I think, to take this despite its original context and say that it does apply in the thing that is emphasized here, especially in verse 23, to the whole issue of the work that we do and who is looking at our work. Paul is arguing here in this passage of Scripture to not do your daily work just for the eye that is formally watching you. The performance evaluation, the time card, the expense report, the outward manifestations that will say, here is the work that this person accomplished in this particular day or, or week, or the boss's time of coming in for an evaluation, or just the fact that when the manager happens to be in the room or when he or she is not in the room. The argument here is based on the Lord who is over all. And it really asks you, in effect, to forget about your manager, to forget about your CEO. Well, don't forget him completely because he or she has got an influence that you've certainly got to be aware of. But look past them to see the Lord who is over all and work for Him. For Him, perform with high standards. To please Him. He is watching. He sees the ethical corners that you cut when nobody's looking. He sees the praise that you sort of managed to manipulate so it made you look good when it really belonged to a co-worker. He sees the appearance you're so concerned about building up when really it should be effectiveness and quality work that is your great concern. I don't care how long you've been in the workplace. I went to the General Assembly of our denomination this week as a 35-year pastor and began to really realize how creaky and old I am watching young men of 28, 29 get up and speak, brand new in their ministry with many good things to say. And that, you know, we, we have an address in the PCA assembly. We, we address fathers and brothers. Nobody knows exactly who the fathers are, but I think I'm becoming one of them. It has something to do with the quantity of gray hair you have. But no matter how many years you've been working at whatever it is you do, Colossians 3.23 should reach out and grab you. Whatever you do, work at it with your heart as serving the Lord, not men. It might be a very unpleasant job. It might be the task that really should have been done by an underling, but that person isn't here and it has to be done. It might be some aspect of the job where there's no glory attached, no credit, no additional pay, but the Lord sees it. And I believe this word speaks equally to company owners just as it does to carpenters or nurses or salesmen or laborers or machinists or teachers or physicians. Work at it with your heart to please the Lord who's over all. Employers, masters, you're spoken to here also as you see it flow over into verse 1. By the way, the chapter division here is a poor one as that's not inspired by God. Men did that later and the chapter really should have begun with verse 2, but the thought is there that masters also don't think you're off the hook. Don't think you're the big owner who can just do what you want. Masters, employers, company owners, do what is right and fair, for you also serve a Lord. Do you see how many times the word Lord 
occurs in this passage. I actually didn't count them. You can do it if you want from verse 18 onward. It's there quite a few times because it's the theme of this. It's the principle that Paul's been developing as we conclude here today. This household code of behavior exhorts the root principle of Colossians that Christ is our Lord, that He dwells in us. He brings into us the fullness of God. And we have died to sin at His cross and been raised with Him, and now we live a new Christian life that gazes steadily on Him as a master to be served. And His power is at work in us, making us new people, different people, different kinds of wives and husbands and parents and employees, different from the -the run-of-the-mill bolt of cloth of everyone else who doesn't have Christ. So Christ is in you as hope of glory. That speaks about salvation. But don't leave your salvation in the pew on Sunday. How is the fullness of God in Christ visible in your home, in your relations with your wife and husband, at your work, in your parenting? You cannot live by the American social status quo if you're a new creature in Christ. We are resurrected wives, resurrected husbands, parents, and employees. We have a new master. Him we joyfully serve and honor. And from him comes the power and ability to do these things that require a transformed life. He gives divine grace for all of our relationships all the time. Thanks be to him. Father, you've called us to a high calling, even in our everyday moving about, conversations, relations with each other. There's not a person here who's excluded from what this passage has talked about. We ask for your grace. We ask for your enablement as new creatures in Christ. We ask if there are those who hear this and it's a foreign language to them, that they might be called to bow before this Lord, to find the new self created in righteousness in Jesus with new ability, new hope, new graciousness. We ask this through him who died and rose for us, even Jesus. Amen.